Now this text is a very sad text. What we see here, and just to contextualize it, you go back to Genesis 12, and there was so much promise in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, when God called Abraham, and God said, I'm going to give you a great family. And in fact, it's through your family, Abraham, that all the other families of the earth will be blessed. And we see there uh, a snapshot of the gospel, that Jesus, coming from Abraham's family, does provide salvation for all the families of the earth. Those of us who believe in Jesus, whether we are from Abraham's family or any other family, can find salvation in the son of Abraham, Jesus the Christ. Now here we are in chapter 35. Just 13 chapters or so later, or 23 chapters later, sorry, from the time that Abraham was called. And look at what's happening to his family. First of all, do you notice how many wives Jacob, his grandson, has four, two wives and two concubines. You may say, well, uh, what are we supposed to make of that? Well, it wasn't good. God, God never intended for, for men to have more than one wife. We have to wrestle through that. Well, why did he allow the family through which God is going to bring salvation to the world? Why would he allow such sin? And, and we can't just explain it away by saying, well, that was ancient culture, ancient custom. Because Genesis 2 is so, so clear that therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. One wife. So, so that's one problem that we have with this text. It's also a sad text because Jacob's favorite wife, now there's a lot of problems in that. Good to have one wife, then your wife is your favorite wife. But if you have four wives, or two wives and two concubines, his favorite wife dies giving birth to a son. It's sad. And Benjamin is the last of the 12 sons born to Jacob. These men become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, on the, on the back end of this text, we have Isaac, Abraham's son, Jacob's father, the grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. He dies. And then we see a, a reminder of the strife between two brothers in this family of Abraham. Esau and Jacob come together to bury their father. They're not getting along. Jacob has fled for his life because he cheated his brother, because he stole the bless, blessing and the birthright uh, from his brother Esau, who was the eldest. And Jacob did this by deceiving his father Isaac. And this is the family through which God is going to bless the world. This is the family through which we are going to receive salvation. Now, we're not even done. Everything that I've just said is just context because the verse that we're going to look at is perhaps the strangest, the most difficult of all the verses that we read. Take a look at verse 22. As I read this, remember that Jacob was renamed Israel. So this is a comment about the man, but it has, you know, if you were to dig a little bit deeper, there's some foreshadowing for the nation. Verse 22. When Israel lived in that land... Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. What happened here? 
This should not have happened. Reuben, we're told in verse 23, is Jacob's oldest son, his firstborn son. And so his firstborn son, which you would expect might inherit the blessing, might carry forward the blessing that God had given to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. We know ultimately it falls to Judah and not to Reuben. Perhaps he's disqualified himself here. But Jacob's firstborn son, the eldest of this family through which God is going to bless the world, goes and he takes for himself his father's concubine, one of his father's wives, I think we could say, and he sleeps with her. And, and so much more happened than just napping together. And we're told that Israel heard about it. Now, who heard about it? Israel, all Israel, the whole family, probably. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is this a reference to Israel the man or Israel the family? It was probably both. Everybody heard of it. Reuben's father, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, heard about it. And we're not told that he did anything about it. But how do you imagine this impacted Reuben's relationship with his father? Just think of it. I mean, it's devastating. The things that this family did to itself uh, to ruin and to, to strain relationships. Now, who is Bilhah? Bilhah is not only one of Jacob's concubines, but he is, she is also the mother of two of Reuben's brothers. You see how, how ugly and twisted and complicated this gets. Look at verse 25. The sons of Bilhah, this is who Reuben went up and lay with. She was Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. So Reuben has two brothers, well, ten brothers, or eleven brothers, but two of the brothers are born to Bilhah, this woman that Reuben went up and took for himself. How do you imagine this impacted Reuben's relationship with his brothers? Devastating. Which begs the question, why in the world is this in the Bible? Should we, should we be taking this morning to even look at such a thing? Or is that one of those verses that you read and that just very quickly keep going? Sort of historical footnote that really can't be instructive for us in the church. That really can't shed any light uh, on the gospel for us. Is that true? Well, one thing that this verse does do is it shows the real dangers of, of using the Old Testament as a book of instruction. Uh, that is, it shows the pitfalls, the dangers. If you're reading through the Old Testament trying to figure out how you ought to behave, uh, you're going to be really disappointed. And, and as you're going through, you're like, well, I don't understand the Old Testament. I don't understand uh, why these things are in the Bible because most of the people are acting badly. Most of the people are just sinning in ways that we wouldn't even dream of sinning. And so what, what sometimes happens is you say, well, I'm just going to start in Matthew. I'm going to start in Matthew. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend that the Old Testament doesn't exist because it's, it's just really gross and hard to understand and morally bankrupt. And much of that's true. Now, now you could, if, if you really want to 
get into the Old Testament, you say, well, I, I really do want moral instruction from the Bible. I want to be able to open up the Bible, and I want the Bible to tell me how I ought to live my life. What you could do, you could say, well, I'm just going to do the exact opposite of everything that's recorded in the Old Testament. So I'm not going to have four wives, or two wives and two concubines. I'm not going to sleep with my father's wife, my brother's mother. I'm not going to do these things. I'm not going to have a favorite wife. I'm not going to steal the, the, the inheritance from my brother. You, you could do that. The problem is that not everyone always acts badly in the Old Testament. And, and then you come across something, you're like, oh man, I don't know what to do with Joseph. I don't know what to do with Daniel because they seem to be acting all right. So then what do you do? Well, the Bible, and this is really helpful, the Bible is predominantly and primarily, especially the narrative and the people, this is a record of history. It's an accurate record of things that have happened. Sometimes we should emulate the things that people are doing. Sometimes we shouldn't. Well, how do we know the difference? Well, well the most important thing to do to start is that our, our reason for reading the Bible primarily has to be different than seeking it for moral instruction. Why, why, why ought we read the Bible? Don't worry, we'll get to moral instruction. But, but first and foremost, why, why, why should we read the Bible? To know God. To know Jesus Christ. To understand the gospel. To, to have a deeper appreciation for, for the grace and the loving kindness and the steadfastness and the patience and the mercy and the plan and the redemption of God for us through Jesus Christ. And, and so if, if our, our primary reason for reading the Bible is not to see ourselves, if the Bible is no longer just a mirror where I... Well, what can it tell me about myself? What, how can I learn to live today? How can, I, how can this change me right here and right now? If we change it and we say, well, actually, what I really want, first and foremost, is to see God. I want to know him. Trusting. I told you I'd, we'd get to the moral instruction. Trusting that when we know God, it will change the way we live our lives. The, the benefit will be moral instruction, though that's not what we're originally, primarily, exclusively seeking. So I'm not against finding moral instruction. You'll get no higher standard of morality anywhere in the world than in the Bible. But, but our first step is to know God. Because you cannot have a deep-rooted, unshakable morality divorced from God. Get to know God. Get to know the lawgiver. Get to know the one who is fully righteous, fully perfect, fully pure, and then you will see the rest. Well, okay, well, that, how does that help us here? Uh, how does that help us with Genesis 35, 22? Well, if you're not looking for moral instruction, we're going to learn something about God, about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles to Genesis 37. The answer for why Genesis 35.22 is in the Bible, we find the answer in Genesis 37. So let's just remind ourselves, 35.22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Why is that in the Bible? Well, 
Take a look at verse 12 of chapter 37. The beginning of chapter 37, we have Joseph. He's dreaming about how his brothers are going to worship him. Obviously, this doesn't make him very popular. He's already his father's favorite son, so they don't like him. The, the, the problems for this family just get worse. Uh, Jacob transfers uh, all of his favoritism from his favorite wife who dies giving birth to Benjamin, puts it on Joseph, and he gives him a coat, and then Joseph starts having these dreams saying, I really am the best. I am the greatest. You're going to worship me. Worship not in the way that we worship God, but worship in the way that we obey and and follow uh, others. Now we get to verse 12. Now, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Now, this, this is terrible for Jacob to do. I want you to go spy on your brothers, come back and rat them out. Tell me what they are doing. Are they doing what I asked them to do? So you already take a bad situation, it's going to get a whole lot worse. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? So obviously Joseph was like looking around. He couldn't find the brothers anywhere. He's looking for them, and he's, he's so physical in his search that there's a stranger who says, you're looking for something, and you're not finding it. What are you looking for? Verse 16, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please. Where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Dothan is like a mini Las Vegas, just so you know. They're supposed to be watching the flock. What do they do? They go and they are, well, we don't know what they're doing, but they're pleasure-seeking in Dothan. So what kind of report then is Joseph going to bring back to their father? Verse 18, now the brothers saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Things in this family have gotten bad. I mean, this reminds us of the second generation with with Cain and Abel. Just this strife within families. Verse 19, and they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of it, last time we heard about Reuben, what was he doing? He was not napping with his father's concubine. When Reuben heard of it, this is the last guy that we would expect to be a a, a standard bearer for good morality. He rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Now why? Why would Reuben not want to kill Joseph? Is it because he he has seen the light? He he went through this moral transformation? And now he couldn't think about doing something so despicable? That's not it. That's not the reason. In fact, the Bible tells us the reason when we keep reading here. 
Why did he do this? Why did he suggest that they not kill Joseph? It's not that he particularly liked Joseph. It's not that he wanted to save his life. It was that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So what was Reuben's motivation? Don't kill him. Let's not kill him. Put him in this pit. So Reuben was going to come back pull Joseph out of the pit, take Joseph home to dad and say, dad, I know that you and I are on the outs. I did a bad thing. I know that this is your favorite son. I want to kill two birds with one stone here. The rest of your sons wanted to kill him. But I saved him. Are we good? And so what he does is he's restoring himself to Jacob. But more than that, he's, he's putting the rest of his brothers in bad light, right? He, he wants Jacob to hate the rest of his brothers. So maybe it will just be Reuben and Joseph. That's really important. Why? If Reuben had not done what he had done with Bilhah, would he have tried to save Joseph's life? Doubtful. Which means what? means Joseph would have died. It ends up that the sin of Reuben saved Joseph's life. Now, did Reuben actually restore Joseph to his father? Let's keep reading. Then they, that is the brothers, sat down to eat. So they threw him in the pit. They didn't know what they were going to do. Uh, they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it to us if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Now, is Judah having this moral epiphany here? We can't kill our brother. That's just not right. Such things ought not be done. Now he's like, let's make a little money. Now, by the way, Judah is the line of the Messiah. And and Judah goes through a massive transformation. You see the beginning of it in Genesis 38. So go and read 38 sometime. And then you see how Judah's sin in Genesis 38 transforms him so that he saves Benjamin's life. That's amazing. Uh, You have... Reuben, who sins, saves Joseph's life. Then you have Judah, who sins, who later saves Benjamin's life, or that's what he thinks he's doing. And so you have the two sons of Jacob's favorite wife being saved by two sons who commit uh, terrible sins. Anyway, that's sort of a side note. But you see here that, that Judah says, let's, let's not kill him, not because I don't want to see him dead. Let's get some money out of this. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Verse And his brothers listened to him, verse 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Just a little side note, 20 shekels of silver, that's interesting. That's a historical footnote that shows that this is an accurate account because uh, people who say that Genesis was written much later, a a slave later is sold for 30 shekels. But at the time that Joseph lived, it was 20 shekels. It's just little incidental things that help you to trust the Bible. Now, now, why isn't Reuben protesting? Why, why isn't Reuben saying, no, I, I have to restore him to my father. Maybe he wants to go and, and buy him from these slave traders because he doesn't want his brothers to know what's going to happen. But where's Reuben? Why isn't he trying to say, no, that's a bad idea. I have my own plans. 
Well, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone! And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. So, Reuben, why was he not there? We don't really know, but there's some, I think we can see from the text, what happens is they throw him in the pit, they go to have their lunch. Reuben wastes no time, he goes back to the pit. He's going to deliver Joseph right away, leave his brothers eating lunch, He's going to get Reuben out of the pit and head home to Hebron to his father. And it's going to be Reuben and Joseph. He goes back to the pit. Joseph's gone. Now, what I don't understand there is how did, if that's what Reuben was doing, how did the brothers get him out of the pit and Reuben not there? Which gives us a second option to why Reuben was not there, which is this. Maybe Dan and Naphtali don't want to have lunch with Reuben. Yeah, maybe they can't stop him from tending the flock, but no, we're not going to be hanging out in table fellowship with you, brother, after what you have done. So Reuben is, is really alone, and you can hear his despair there then. He's maybe away eating by himself. Then he goes to the pit, thinking, well, I'll try and get him out. By that time, Joseph's already been sold. And listen to the despair in his voice. First of all, he tore his clothes. He said, the boy's gone, and I, where shall I go? I don't belong with you. I don't belong with my father. I'm all alone. If Reuben was not eating with his brothers because his brothers would not eat with him because of his sin, we find out the second thing about the sin of Reuben, and that is this, that the sin of Reuben ended up sending Joseph to Egypt. Because had he been there, he might have stopped that plan. Thus the sin of Reuben saved Joseph's life on the one hand, but cost Joseph his freedom on the other hand. Now if we were to continue in the story, we find out that uh, Joseph goes through all kinds of highs and lows in Egypt. He is sold by these Ishmaelites to Potiphar, and he does very well. He rises up in Potiphar's house, but then he's falsely accused of, uh, of uh, uh, rape, and he's sent to prison. While he's in prison, he just happens to be in the right place at the right time for the cupbearer and the baker who used to serve Pharaoh who are thrown into prison, and he interprets their dreams, and he interprets them correctly. And, and the cupbearer, who is restored to Pharaoh, just as Joseph had said, tells Pharaoh when Pharaoh is having bad dreams that there's a man in the dungeon that might be able to interpret his dream. And so Pharaoh gets Joseph out of the dungeon, brings him up, and Joseph interprets his dream. And this is basically interpretation. There's going to be seven years of plenty, store some food. Then there's going to be seven years of famine. You then, in those seven years of famine, give out the food that you stored in the first seven years. Now here's the point. Unless Joseph is in the dungeon with the cupbearer, he's not in front of Pharaoh. 
he's not interpreting Pharaoh's dream. If he's not in, uh, interpreting Pharaoh's dream, then the seven years of plenty come, but all the food is eaten up and wasted. When the seven years of famine come, people die in Egypt. People die in Hebron. It's absolutely essential for Egypt and Canaan and all the surrounding area that Joseph gets that audience with Pharaoh to interpret his dream. And if you take a chain of events, what was it that happened to get Joseph before Pharaoh to interpret the dream so that Pharaoh could say, Joseph, you be my prime minister. You look after the food program. You make sure that we don't starve. You make sure that we don't die. If that doesn't happen, then everybody dies, including who? including the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, including Judah and Perez, who are in the line of the Messiah. If, if Joseph is not in Egypt, the line of the Messiah dies of famine. And the messianic line would come to an end. And if the messianic line comes to an end, then Jesus is not born. And if Jesus is not born, then God's promises to Abraham fail. And if God's promises to Abraham fail, then there's no way for us to be saved. Thus, through a long chain of events, the sin of Reuben ends up saving the Messianic line. Ensuring that God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled by the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus some 2,000 years later. It's really crucial that we see how this all works. If, if Reuben doesn't go up and lay with the concubine of his father and create this relational tension between him and Jacob, he has no motive for saving Joseph's life. And if Joseph's life isn't saved then and there, then the messianic line dies of famine. If Reuben has reason to be eating with his brothers, then he would have prevented them from selling him into slavery into Egypt. But because he has made himself a stench to Dan and Naphtali, and they don't eat together, he's not there when this transaction takes place. Therefore, it's the sin of Reuben that enables his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. If Joseph is not sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he doesn't go to jail. If he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, he doesn't meet Pharaoh. If he doesn't meet Pharaoh, he doesn't become prime minister. If he doesn't become prime minister, Egypt and Canaan die of famine. And if Egypt and Canaan die of famine, then Jesus' family tree, the line of the Messiah, dies. This is amazing. Now this causes, though, a great problem for us, doesn't it? Are we saying that the birth of Jesus depended on the sin of Reuben in Genesis 35, 22? Yes. Yes, we are. That's a problem, isn't it? Do you, do you feel the tension there? So, so a man has to go in and sleep with his father's concubine so that the Messiah can be born? 
God, that, that doesn't seem like a very good plan. That doesn't seem like the way that we want to see the Messiah come into the world. There's got to be another way. Well, could God have found another way? Yes. So hear me. Could God have found another way? Yes. But he didn't. That's the point, right? The birth of Jesus, as told to us in the Bible, depends upon Genesis 35:22. That's the plan. That was the link in the chain. Could, could God have brought Jesus into the world if, if Reuben didn't do this? Yes, he could have. I'm not denying that. But it is through the sin of Reuben that God did preserve Joseph's life. So, so talking about contingent realities is not that helpful for us, actually. It's not that helpful for us to say, well, God could have done it a different way. Because that's just the lazy way out. That's just the, the easy way out of trying to say, well, I, I, I don't, don't know what to do with that sin and the way God used it. I, do, I don't think I like it. I, I don't think I'm comfortable with that. I don't think I can affirm that God would ever, ever use sin like that for a good purpose. But this is how the line of the Messiah was, in fact, preserved. Our own Bible tells us so. That's our problem is this. How are we to reconcile the sin of Reuben with the saving purposes of God? Did God endorse Reuben's sin? I'll ask you an even harder question. Did God cause Reuben to sin? in order to preserve the messianic line? I mean, is God just a utilitarian God? I, I mean, you know, it, the greater good requires that I create this little pocket of evil. Would, would God ever think or do such a thing? Absolutely not. And, and this is where the tension comes in. No, God did not endorse Reuben's sin. No, God did not cause Reuben to sin the way that he did. God, God hated Reuben's sin. Let us be clear. God hates sin. And, and this is absolutely clear from James 1, verses 13 to 15. Let, just listen as I read it to you. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God hated Reuben's sin. God did not tempt Reuben to sin. God was not in favor of Reuben's sin. In fact, God judges Reuben's sin severely. But God used Reuben's sin to further his plan of redemption. You feeling the weight of this? The tension? The awkwardness of it all? What are we to make of it? This is grace. This is grace. At work in salvation history. 
I want us to put this in perspective. Reuben's sin is just one in a million, billion, trillion. That's a made-up number. But it's just one in a whole lot of sin between Genesis 3 and Matthew 1. So, so we could look at Reuben, and, and we could say that it was wrong of Reuben to do that, and we could even say, and we have to be very careful because we are wrong to make this judgment, we could say it was wrong of God to use that sin in order to protect the line of the Messiah. And I think in our, in our practical theology, we often do tend in that direction, right? And we have to be very careful because we found that in that instant, we are judging God. And... and as bad as that is, we are missing the point, which is that God, when he promised Abraham that in you and through you and by your family, all the families of the earth would be blessed, God never for a moment then laid this weight on Abraham and said, therefore, I want you and your son and your son's son and your son's son's son and your son's 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 son and all along the line uh, to be without sin. God never said that. God never said that I will bring salvation if you don't sin. He never said, now it is up to you to follow my commandments perfectly. I want to see an unbroken chain of righteousness from you to the Messiah in order for me to save people. No, do you know what God said? I'm going to do this no matter what you do. No matter what you do, I am going to do this. My grace is going to be so potent in the life of your family, that it doesn't matter how much your family sins, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to use the sin of every generation. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to hate the sin. I'm going to judge the sin. But in every generation, I am going to use that sin to bring the Messiah into the world. And here's why. Because salvation doesn't depend on you, Abraham. It depends on me. Uh, salvation does not depend upon your ability to be righteous. It depends on my righteousness, says God. It doesn't depend on a bunch of conditional promises that I'm going to give to you. This is unconditional. Unconditional. And in Genesis 15, what happens here is, because Abraham still doesn't quite understand this, God says, look, I want you to understand what I'm doing with you. Take all these animals, cut them in half, create an aisle, and right down the middle of the aisle, Abraham expected to walk. And Because this is a way that used to make a contract or a treaty with a king in the ancient world. And this is what it was. The king would do something great for a people, and then he would have the people each bring an animal, and every person would cut the animal right in half, creating this bloody aisle. And then all of the people would walk through the aisle, and the king would would be at the end of the aisle and they would bow down before the king and they would say if we break covenant with you O great king you can do to us what we did to these animals that's exactly what Abraham is expecting to do God says I want you to get all these animals divide them up and Abraham expects to walk through the pieces but what does God do God says I'm going to cause a great sleep uh, to come over you so that you are not able to walk through the pieces and then God himself, in a vision of a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, walks through the pieces. And this is the point. This is what God was saying to Abraham. This is what I'm saying to you. When, this is God to Abraham, when you and your descendants sin, Abraham, you can do to me what you have done to these animals. God... What a God. And so every generation had its sin and God worked through all of it. 
bring the Messiah into the world. There is a chain of sin from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1. You won't find a lot of righteousness along the way. So we praise God. Salvation is not about our ability to do what is right. But God in his divine wisdom brings salvation to us. Joseph understood this. No. Joseph understood this. This is what he says to his brothers. They, they're afraid after their father dies that Joseph will kill them. So they come to him at the very end of Genesis. He says, you, you don't understand. As for you, brothers, you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And, and, and Joseph's talking about all of the people that actually benefited from his food program. And I don't know if he knew this, but we know this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, that many people would be saved unto eternal life. Because unless I'm here, unless you did that terrible thing against me and sold me into slavery, unless you did that, then the Messiah doesn't come into the world. God meant it for good. Peter understood it. Again, just listen, on Pentecost, first Christian sermon after the ascension of Jesus. Men of Israel, says Peter, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up that is, to crucifixion, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you have no crucifixion of Jesus unless God uses sin. Judas becomes a key player in salvation history to his own demise. Nevertheless, God used Judas to put Jesus on the cross. Uh, the, the executioners who put the nails through the hands and the feet of Jesus, they were sinning. Pontius Pilate and Herod that handed Jesus, the Lord of glory, over to be scourged and crucified. They were sinning. God used it. This was the definite plan of God from before the foundation of the world. God does not sin. He does not cause anyone to sin. But because of his great grace... He uses our sin. Praise be to God. Now do we, do we have categories in our brain for understanding this? 
when we think about the deep love and grace of God toward us, have we considered the countless ways that God has used the sin of men and women to bring about our salvation? What about our own sin? Can God use our sin? This is dangerous territory, isn't it? Can I actually tell you that God will use your sin for his own good purposes? I'm getting pretty close to a cliff, aren't I? Well, hear me. God hates it when we sin. He hates it. He will not be pleased with us if we give ourselves permission to sin. At the same time, know the grace of God at work in your life. What is the sin of your past that that haunts you? Could God use that for good? Having repented of that sin, could you come along someone who is struggling with that sin and work with them and show them the grace of God? Could God be that merciful with you? Of course he could. And so I just encourage all of us, when we fall into sin, Let us not fall into despair, but let us repent. Repent sincerely from from a deep heart of, of, of grief over the sins that we have committed, over a desire not to keep on sinning. Let us repent, and then let us ask God to do what only God can do. God, bring some good out of the evil that I intended. Isn't that what Psalm 51 is all about? Create in me a clean heart, and then I will teach transgressors your ways. Do you know how much more powerful it is when you come along and and you say, are you struggling with materialism and worldliness? I, I was in the grip of worldliness. I don't judge you, but my heart breaks for you. And that's sinful. And let me help you through this. Do you see how much better that is than you are, are, are wrong? God hates what you're doing. Do you, do you see how God can even use our sins in his plan of redemption in the life of one another? You just plug in the sin. So powerful when sinners come alongside sinners and point to the grace of God. One other thing I want to say about this is if God can use our sin, how much more then can he use our righteous deeds? So, so this is not a sermon saying go out and sin and just see what God will do with it. it, it it's not that. It, it's saying if God can even use our sin because of his grace and his wisdom, how much more then when we repent of the sin and when we put our, our, ourselves toward righteousness, how much more useful are we to him? So go out and sin no more and yet let us praise God for his grace. 
without the pervasive grace of God lavished upon us, we would never, as a race of creatures, made it out of Genesis 3. Do you know, if God did not bestow his grace upon Adam and Eve, do you know what happens to a man and a woman who are totally depraved? They kill each other. The end of any hope of a messianic line. It was by the grace of God that generation two came into the world. The sheer grace of God. So do you want a big view of God? Do, do you want a, 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 an incomprehensible view of the greatness of our God? See him through the lens of his act of grace. Because without that, we're not saved. We're, we don't make it out of Genesis 3. It's the God of grace who uses sin like Reuben's sin to bring the Messiah into the world that we worship. But this is so praiseworthy. So what have we done today? What, what was the method that we used for seeing Jesus in the Old Testament? This is called historical progression. So we've looked at type scenes. We've looked at typology. This is historical progression. If you give yourself to reading through the Bible, you're going to come across things. You're like, I just don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to do with that. It doesn't, that doesn't seem to be edifying in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't resemble the gospel to me. It doesn't seem like the way we're supposed to live. We'll try to read it and understand the gospel through the lens of historical progression. Try and figure out, what it, why did God record this? It's because he's displaying his grace. He wants us to understand the, the, the role that his grace has played from the very beginning to bringing the gospel into the world. It's not as though God was a God of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament, and then finally we get to Matthew, and all finally, ah, the God of grace is here. I mean, the sin of Reuben shows us that the God of grace was active. So when we read through the Old Testament, we're going to come across verses like Genesis 35, 22. Ask yourself, why is this in the Bible? Why was it written? Why is this the word of God? Why did God want to preserve it for us? Verses and passages like this explain to us how we get from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1. The Old Testament, you see, is a chain of events from the fall of humanity to the coming of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And every link in the chain points to Christ because Jesus is the centerpiece of history and God uses every detail to bring his son into the world to die for our sins. The sin of Reuben is terrible. But through the sin of Reuben, we have reason to praise the God of grace. Let's pray. Oh God, it almost seems wrong to preach that you would use the sin of Reuben to bring Jesus into the world. And yet, that's exactly what you did. That which Reuben intended for evil, you used for good. You saved Joseph's life. You sent him 
into Egypt so that he might save not only a great number of people, but most importantly, the life of Judah, his brother, which is the line of the Messiah. And so we praise you, God of grace, and we ask you to help us to live righteous lives, seeking to do what is good and right, but then also helping us not to fall into despair because we know that you are so rich in love and rich in mercy and rich in grace that you will use even our sin to bring about your perfect plan of redemption. Oh God, help us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.